Hello and welcome to Cursed Objects. My name is Dan Hancocks. I'm Kasha T. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a cursed object which I've brought in, which is uh, an eye-popping red, <laughs> yellow and purple football shirt. It's quite, it's quite an odd combination of colours to see on a shirt. Popping is the right way to describe it. Doesn't, Definitely popping. Doesn't really go with anything apart from black trousers, but fortunately that is most of my <laughs> wardrobe, so that's okay. Um, yeah, it's also like dotted with little insignia, but we're going to talk about what all those are and what these colours mean and why it's cursed. This is one of many sort of extravagant and colourful shirts, football shirts that I own that belong to a club other than the one I support. There's a there's a Sierra Leone shirt which I bought because it has a really cool lion on it. Cool. Um, I've got a Besiktas uh, shirt, Turkish team because their fans are anarchists, and I went to the <laughs> game once and it was like the best atmosphere I've ever heard. I've got a Universidad de Chile shirt um, which I bought just because the sponsor is Cristal and that's like the the champagne of choice of the UK Jack Garage. Like, so he knows what the cool type of shirt so Cristal on the middle. Um, so yeah, this is one of many. A variety of reasons. Yeah, a variety of reasons. You know, and a variety of a variety of, a variety of curses as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is the away shirt for Clapton Community Football Club, which is not my team, but it's one with a notable story for those of us sort of nerds that are interested in the small intersection of obscure football teams and radical politics. There's mm-hmm. not much in the middle of that Venn diagram, but this is one of those things. Um, the short version of the club's history is that like. They're based in North London. They've been around. The original Clapton FC were around for over a hundred years, mm-hmm. and then at some point in the 2010s, local left-wing activists started drifting into the club, and and that trickle became a flood until they basically took it over. Right. Um, and you know, self-identified as the Clapton Ultras, did loads of great like activism and fundraising in their sort of mm-hmm. spare time and stuff, and then fell out with the owner of the club who had never asked for this intrusion, this influx of left-wing <laughs> fans, though who clearly benefited enormously mm, from them because mm. they'd sort of ten-tupled, is that a word? I don't know, they'd massively increased the <laughs> gate receipts um, and, the, and the sort of, you know, identity of the club and so on. Anyway, so the, the fans then all left, having fallen out with the owner, and in 2018 started their own Clapton football club. Amazing. Which is Clapton Community FC as opposed to Clapton FC. It's quite, right. and they're both playing red and white, and they're both based in Clapton, <laughs> North London, and they're both tiny. But yes, the one we're talking about today, Clapton CFC, play in the Middlesex County Football League Premier Division. Okay. Which is a full 11 divisions below the sort of Liverpools and Arsenal's of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this shirt was a present from two very good friends of mine. I love it dearly. Um, so it's cursed, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. And. The best way to think to explain what the colours and the symbols on it are about is just a quote from the Clapton CFC website. They say it was designed to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the end of the Spanish Civil War. Our away kit is inspired by the flag of the Spanish Republic and is adorned with the three-pointed star of the International Brigades who travelled to Spain attempting to hold back the fascist tide. Across the back of the neck you will find their immortal words, No Pasaran. And they sold over 12,000 of these shirts. Like, it's a genuine phenomenon. There's wow. been, like, a Guardian news story about the success of them. and um, So, like, more people have bought them than uh, fought in the international brigades from Britain, right? Oh, my God, that is such, <laughs> that is such a mad point that you're absolutely... I was going to say more people have bought them than have been to see Clapton CFC, <laughs> but that's actually a much more profound comparison in terms of the numbers. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, the Brits were actually, I don't think many people know this, but weren't like the primary constituency in the International Brigades and mm. all Americans. Um, it was primarily Polish and French mm. volunteers. Which um, is so interesting because it occupies such a like prominent position mm-hmm. in like a British cultural memory. Yeah, so, so big. And like there's, you know... The part of that is the fact that, like, seemingly every literary figure, painter and, mm. and poet mm. uh, from the Anglophone world mm. went and fought, uh, or at least went and wrote some, you know, poems <laughs> about, about it and wrote, wrote a sort of war diary. Um, but yes, it's associated, the International Brigade, it's assumed that basically this is a, a transatlantic Anglophone primarily, which is not, not the case. And actually on that subject, the new Giles Tremlett book on the International Brigade is sensational, can't recommend it enough, and gives you that full, complex history. But yeah, the just to sort of talk about the shirt a bit more, like it, 
I kind of want to contextualize it within sort of the football world and because I think it sort of deliberately stands in sharp contrast with its equi- the equivalent shirts that you might see um around the world like a um like the football shirt now is like a sort of global borderless capitalist icon in a way the, the clubs are so huge they yeah, are yeah, yeah. invariably like owned by uh you know the top flight clubs that is are invariably owned by like very dodgy consortia of like um overseas investors who are sort of laundering some of their like <laughs> their, their, their dodgy money they're often sponsored by you know highly dodgy brands mm. like gambling like so many of them are gambling companies at the moment that you used to have um, like alcohol and I think possibly cigarette brands, but they were banned essentially for sort of health reasons. But there's just so much dodgy money in top flight football, and that kind of that change to it kind of corresponds with the global to the globalization of club football, which was all about localism, hyper localism mm-hmm. in the past. And now you would not be surprised to see an Arsenal football shirt, um, a Paris Saint Germain football shirt, or a Barcelona shirt on any continent i firmly believe that and i think when i was a kid that wouldn't have been the case so this shirt is sort of deliberately and declaratively like a rejection of modern football in the way that it tends to operate in its sort of hyper capitalist form and in fact the phrase against modern football um has Mm. become like this rallying cry within within sort of football fans within football's own kind of culture wars in the last few years um so especially sort of fans of sort of unfashionable, unsuccessful teams, like objectively unsuccessful teams like Clapton CFC or my own team, AFC Wimbledon, kind of idealise this sort of like lost Arcadia of when football was muddy and probably more violent. But it was, which, you know, those aren't all good things, don't get mm. me wrong. But it all... But, but it's idealised as something real, like a real yeah, experience. Absolutely. And it was, it was a real experience, exactly. But it was also like accessible to mm. people who weren't super wealthy because mm-hmm. that's the other transformation that's happened in like not global football but certainly like most western european countries mm-hmm. but britain particularly germany sells very cheap tickets but you know for to give you a sense of sort of how bourgeois it's become in this country like a season ticket for one of the big clubs will cost you up to a thousand pounds to watch 20 games of football during the course of the season a home shirt costs like a, a football shirt costs like 60 quid normally you know these are made of polyester and cheaper shit basically <laughs> you know this claps on one other hand costs 30 quid but yeah like i mean you've you've seen this sort of wholesale like transformation of like who the typical football fan is in the last mm. 30 years essentially since hillsborough the taylor report which followed it the introduction of seating and sky money into the game and I, the reason I tell you all this is not mm. to try and get you into football because we're not doing that today, but uh, <laughs> but more because like you know th- this shirt is you have a- to try harder than that. <laughs> <laughs> but more because this shirt is like a product of these kind of class cultural tensions mm. over whose game it is and who it belongs to, and I think the the shirt and the club are sort of part of that story. So that's kind of like the soured dream of football as a working class game, as the people's game that it was. But it's a different kind of failed idealism that we're going to talk about, I think, mostly today, which is something altogether stranger, which is specifically, like, the key question for this this episode is, like, why would a small club be paying homage to the Spanish Second Republic of 1931 <laughs> to 36 specifically? Because on the face of it, that is an utterly bizarre collision of, like, another country's history with English lower league football. <laughs> like, um, And the short answer is that these colours, this, this alternative Spanish tree colour, because the Spanish flag is red, yellow, red. It wasn't in 1931 to 36. It was red, yellow, purple. And that tricolor of red, yellow, purple have long been a byword for anti-fascism in Spain. And I thought that that was only the case in Spain, where you'll frequently see the, that flag waved on left-wing marches or displayed on T-shirts. I've seen them at like anti-fascist demonstrations, but also demonstrations about housing against mm-hmm. austerity, demonstrations for Catalan independence, confusingly, which has a different flag. But, you know, <laughs> but it's again, it's just like it's a signifier of like a lost utopia or a revolutionary moment for the for the left of actually existing socialism, which, mm. which did exist in parts of Spain during, particularly during 1936, as war loomed and began and all sorts of astonishing things like the uh, abolition of like tipping from, from, uh, from bars and restaurants and like <laughs> the kind of claiming of like cabs and turning them into sort of public transport and stuff mm-hmm. like that. 
So yeah, there are there are, in Spain itself and sort of twenty twenty, you can get Second Republic flags, T shirts, other types of merchandise like very easily through various like left wing merchandising organizations, mm-hmm. trade unions, etc. But I think what this Clapton shirt signifies is the fact that it, this tricolor has like joined No Passeran and the logo of the International Brigades as a kind of internationalist avatar for anti-fascism. And one thing I want to sort of ask and ask you and think about today is why of all the left-wing moments in history has this flag tricolor become so important outside of Spain? I think the International Brigades is a key part of the story here, so important in the left-wing British imaginary. The idea of travelling across the world to fight for another person's freedom was kind of unprecedented in the 1930s. It sometimes feels like the UK left is obsessed with the Spanish Revolution and Civil War. Mm. And I speak as someone for whom reading like Homage to Catalonia, the George Orwell book, as a teenager was indirectly responsible for both like crushing any teenage belief I had in revolution. Because <laughs> like the scales fall from his eyes in that book. He realises what... Stalinism, what the Soviet Union actually means in practice, because he sees the repression of, you know, his comrades in the mm-hmm. Poom, the the Trotsky Trotskyite sort of militia, and the anarchists as well. The war within a civil war in Barcelona, where the the Soviet troops running the international brigades are shooting at like people who should be their comrades, and you feel Orwell's pain there. And it, but it was also like the scales falling from my eyes and like mm. growing up a bit in a way mm. reading that book but it was also a book that kind of started a fascination for me with Spanish history with Spanish radical politics and ended with me like reporting and even writing a book about sort of various protests and communist villages and everything else so there's, there's this I feel that connection very closely which mm. is part of the reason I love this shirt I think I was going to tell you when I was 16 me and my friend Joe even wrote a song called Catford versus the Fascists <laughs> Which was like imagining <laughs> like a Spanish Civil War type conflict in South London. Wow. Um, I now live quite close to Catford, so yeah, I mean, grew up in South London. And is there any like lasting copies of this song? I'm afraid. So, I'm afraid I feel to like <laughs> it's cursed for like a whole different layer of reasons. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was never recorded, <laughs> uh, which I think is possibly for the best. I feel like we should try and like re <laughs> imagine those lyrics. We're not singing, we're not, we're not playing the song over the outro. Yeah, I guess what's really interesting about this is that the Spanish Civil War occupies a really particular place in the cultural memory in in the British left, particularly. Mm. And as you mentioned, I think George Orwell has a really instrumental role in that, specifically in a, in the ways that a lot of British people see them as see themselves as anti-Stalinist because they mm-hmm. were like fairly removed from well they were removed from central europe which is where <laughs> the pressures of stalinism were felt well i'm saying the pressures of stalinism the <laughs> colonization of mm-hmm. stalinism was most profoundly felt yeah and i think it's like quite interesting because i never had that kind of engagement with the spanish mm. civil war because i have like my parents are polish and mm. it's not something that we inherited as a story really because Mm. in Poland there are so many tragedies that we didn't we didn't really need another one you know you need to take on someone else's like yeah crushing exactly exactly well I mean you know because it's interesting because you mentioned that there were loads of Polish fighters that went Mm. there but Polish people were always like forgotten in in those kind of early pre-second war uh, histories because they were mm. essentially stateless. So mm. it's kind of like... Yeah, most of the Polish volunteers were already refugees, I yeah. think. Like yeah, they yeah, were, yeah. They, a lot of them were living in France. Yeah. Um, and and it was relatively easy then to travel down to Spain to, to, to fight for, you know, sort of like it's like a displaced sense of your own oppression mm. in that you have already been forced as in, into, you know, fleeing for your life. And... You're, you know, joining up, joining up that struggle of your own experience with that of your Spanish comrades makes perfect sense as an internationalist, as a communist, as someone who's suffered oppression. For sure. I guess like what we're kind of talking about here is the ways in which a particular past is used by a society or communities or individuals in the present. Right. Mm. And like in uh, academic circles we call that like the study of memory not mm. like not just individual memories but the ways in which memory can be a kind of shorthand for the ways in which 
societies or communities remember a particular event. Mm. So I think there's something really interesting about the ways in which individual memories of that conflict kind of are inherently shaped by wider narratives of that of of the Spanish Civil War essentially. Mm. So they're always interdependent. Like internal personal memory is never really free of the wider mm. cultures of memory or the ways in which it's represented. That comes through in the Ken Loach film Land and Freedom which is about a British volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. Mm. Um, very long, very good film with typical Ken Loach flourishes of like, there's a 25-minute scene where they debate the difference between sort of anarcho-syndicalism and like, yeah. and like and commun- sort of Marxist-Leninism. Like really, really fun sort of edge-of-your-seat stuff. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, it is genuinely really good. But that, um, in that film, like, it begins with a teenage girl in I think modern day Liverpool discovering a box of photos and letters that belong Mm. to her grandfather who is then the main character and the rest of it is not flashback exactly but we then jump back to the actual story of the civil war but the fact that it's framed the film begins Mm. and ends with this teenage girl leafing through those material objects of of memory um, I think really beautifully encapsulates sort of the place the Spanish Civil War has in the le- in the British left imaginary as you as you were saying like that that you know this um this has an outsized importance for for people in Britain for all sorts of reasons I mean I think I think the literary contribution is a big part of that as, as... but I think both of them work in tandem don't they these are all the kind of cultural products that that cause or kind of represent a particular image of that. Mm. So I think what you're describing, or what Ken Loach is doing in that film, is kind of exploring intergenerational memory, which is, Mm. again, something that I don't really have of the Spanish (laughs) Civil War. But in Britain, there is a really strong intergenerational memory of war. So Mm. the thing that kind of fascinates me the most is the way that the left is a culturally and historical identity in Britain. Mm. So the ways in which, like, people would describe their, like, father or their grandfather as, like, a good union man. And, you know, that, that pertains to a really particular way of understanding the world and politics Mm -hmm. and then that kind of film is tapping exactly into that process of going um this is what happened in the past it's sort of it's encapsulated in the material objects as well of things like those those absolutely beautiful trade union banners that you see on on demos but i i think that reflects the fact that actually yeah the, the british left are quite good at telling their own stories they have their own myths yeah, right? they yeah. have their own myths and histories and narratives and i think it's it's like really structured or compounded by the fact that during the 1980s under margaret thatcher mm. so much of like her political project was to change the hearts and minds of the nation but in doing that she often painted a lot of victories on the left for the left mm. as ab- abject failures essentially so mm. what she did is she reframed british history to say that the Second World War was kind of great because there was Winston Churchill. But then after the Second World War, the post-war consensus was an abject failure because basically the left had structured this welfare state that wasn't working. This kind of cradle-to-grave contract wasn't working. Mm. So any kind of time in between 1945 and like 1979 was written off as awful. So what do you do if you're kind of part of the left wing? Where, where, are you, where do your narratives come from that you say are mm. great? And I think it's really, really interesting because in that kind of early 80s period when the when the mines were being closed, it really felt like for a lot of the miners, but a lot of like left wing supporters who were like showing solidarity that it was a war. You know, it really felt like mm, a war. Mm. It really felt like an entire way of life was being completely demolished. Mm. Because it was, because yeah. there was absolutely no care about the the aftercare. There was absolutely mm. no industry afterwards. It was completely... framed as a war by the aggressors. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure, for sure. And it's quite interesting because I was talking to a student. You asked me why losing the mines was so bad when it hugely improved life expectancy. Because instead of working in a mine, as your father or grandfather did, you could now work in an office or something. And I guess that life expectancy increases don't detract from the fact that minor strikes, particularly in the 1980s, felt like a war, a total affront to collective solidarity and work protection. So even though life expectancy now might be seen to have risen, the feeling of war felt like a total destruction of an entire way of life for generations with no offer of an alternative structure. And if that cultural identity is destroyed along with it, then Mm. what does that do to solidarity, to collective identity. I mean, it, I, I wonder if actually the 
you know, the assaults on working class culture and collectivity that began with Thatcher mm. and continued under under major and new labor in what, you know, are often now called the Red Wall, which is a really stupid sort of assembly of, of places, but you know, the ex ex mining communities, ex industrial communities, places that were affected by the changes you're describing. Like if, you know, the physical meeting places, the trade unions, the workplaces, mm. the social clubs the cultural fabric mm. of those communities has been largely dismantled by sort of neoliberalism, by Thatcher mm. and onwards. Then what happens to the expressions of like cultural identity you used to get through through trade unions, through mm. work, you know, the sort of the things that you see in like there's like a whole range of films about this kind of culture, I think, in Britain. So you've got like um the Full Monty, mm. Pride brassed off mm. um i'm sure there are others that i can't immediately think of but something like something that you see in a film like brassed off which is about a brass band that play in the welsh valleys yeah um you know as as those uh sort of cultural practices and meeting points and assemblies like are dismantled mm. you know what what comes after that well i, I think the one answer is brexit <laughs> but, <laughs> depressingly um but i wonder if maybe that marginalizes some of this sort of left-wing collective memory and history that that uh, you see in commemoration of the International Brigades, trade mm. union marches and stuff like, is you know, has that become more marginal than ever before that history? Don't know. Mm. So, yeah, I also kind of want to say that I've got some conflicted feelings about this shirt as much as I sort of love it on the face of it. I mean, it's, worth, it's worth saying, first of all, as well, that, like, this shirt does some good in the world in the sense that like it the manufacturer they've chosen is one that pays a living wage and mm -hmm. does lots of very you know progressive things um and it helps out a community football team and yeah, also i, I would mean, definitely buy one if i could like even though i'm not into football i think it's like an interesting nod to hit to a historical past yeah absolutely i mean and it's all i mean just on a really basic material level though as well like the fans agreed at their last AGM to donate because they sold like tw over 12,000 of these. Yeah. They agreed to donate 4,000 pounds of the profits, despite the fact that, as you say, they are just a community football mm. team to, uh, to the international brigades, Memorial trust mm. who, um, as they put it, work to keep the memory of those who traveled to Spain to fight alive. Um, so that's all kind of now good. That is interesting. And honest <laughs> and noble. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, like I wanted to say those positive things about the shirt mm. and what produced it and the sort of ideals that produced it. But I also want to think about like how the... So can I just ask, yeah. why is it important? Why would it be important to, to donate? Actually, is this jumping in? So what I kind of want to ask is, uh, it's interesting that money has gone to this kind of trust for mm. the memory of the International Brigades. Why yeah. is that memory important? Well, because I mean, it's, is it a manifestation of guilt at the idea that you might be profiting from this sort of history of other people suffering that that would be my sort of first instinct or or or, or just a sort of sense that commemoration is part of what we're doing by producing this shirt in the first place yeah ergo the people that are doing the perhaps a bit less glamorous yeah sort of side of that of um arranging things like talks and plays and mm. sort of memorial physical memorials of which i should say there are at least a couple in in the uk memorials to the international brigades i wonder if it does a few things like if it is a signifier that perhaps the government is not doing enough work or the nation state is not doing enough work to kind of remember this uh remember this event and to i mean i doubt it's doing anything well yeah of course, <laughs> yeah. Of course. but it still has a really particular and prominent position in society in, in british in the british yeah. cultural imaginary and so that's because that's cause of cultural institutions yeah and, for sure and networks like the international brigade memorial trust i suppose you know well perhaps but it's also down to things like george orwell right it's also yeah, down to so. Catalonia. but it's i don't know i think there's something maybe we could read like more broadly about an institution like that or an organization like that. Sorry. That mm. is um, essentially, I don't know, maybe it's about grander narratives of, of history and the idea that some history is marginalized mm -hmm. in popular memories of, of our past in, in a British past, whereas 
I mean, it's certainly is it's marginalised from sort of the I would say the mainstream of of you know cultural and historical producers. Yeah. But it has a very robust place, clearly yeah. on the left, yeah. because <laughs> yeah. you know, here is this Ken Loach film. You know, I think if you ask the average sort of British left wing, say, let's say 21 year olds mm. who did not have any Spanish relatives and did not have any relatives that fought in the Civil War, Spanish Civil War, you know, unlikely that that would be the case anyway. Mm. They would probably know the basics, yeah. I'd imagine. You know, it is, it is a history that is propped up by these kind of cultural institutions. And I think that's exactly, but that keys in exactly to why I am somewhat discomforted by some of this and that I kind of, worry that like there's a melancholia that it sort of infuses the, the sort of affect of the western left today um i want to kind of maybe problematize this sort of honor, honoring of comrades past as much as that seems mm. like objectively a good thing and ask at what point does it kind of cross the line and trivialize and simplify what is a complex and harrowing history of a tragedy in which hundreds mm. of thousands of people were killed like what does it mean if you wear a t-shirt with a slogan or a colorway like the red yellow purple hair as if it's just a shirt that says the rolling stones or yeah. fc uk <laughs> or something you know is that like are you reducing to mass death torture war and you know the 30 or 40 years of like francoism that followed to a like you know something that is just a, a sort of quite cheap badge of identity like I mean, this is, you know, in a way, keys into sort of debates over the poppy as well. But the poppy, if the poppy, like, simplifies and, uh, like, avoidable suffering and kind of contorts mm. its meaning into something that's militaristic, what does this shirt do? Like, I kind of worry that it's part of a process by which material objects, in particular, there's, like, loads of amazing posters that came out of the Spanish Civil War, mm. like, amazing kind of propaganda artworks. There's, like, pin badges you know, sort of just little kind of totems of which side you would have been on, you know, mm. um, that came out of the, all of these things that came out of socialist Republican Spain in the 1930s. I worry that they kind of flatten the history of revolutionary struggle into like a, a quick signifier of identity and cultural capital, yeah, basically. Sure. Like I've got a red and black enamel pin badge that says Deruti column on it, which is a reference to the group of anarchist soldiers who fought under Buenaventura Deruti. That's so cute. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. So, like, I feel like I worry that that's just, like, the most pathetic thing ever. Like, the level of middle-class detachment from, like, this violent 20th century history. Me buying a pin badge in a radical bookshop while on holiday in Glasgow (laughs) for £3.50. Like, it kind of makes me a bit sick. Actually, that contrast, like, the wearing of other people's sacrifice and suffering as this sort of expression of identity yeah but I think also the ways in which we use signs and symbols as identity forming practices is always complex and Mm. it's not actually that I think that like if we read it on like a really basic level it might seem quite depressing but actually it's a signifier (laughs) yeah it's so like for example I have like a t-shirt that says Polska that I would never wear in Poland I bet you would (laughs) (laughs) because in Poland it'd be like this like nationalistic well not a nationalistic thing nationalism is so popular in Poland people would be like well done you're a patriot and I don't I don't like that role I wouldn't like that role yeah whereas like here I'd wear it you know to go to bed or whatever because why not like I it just makes me laugh yeah i think these are context is important context so, is yeah. important yeah. in the ways in which we use these objects and the meanings behind them mm. i think more broadly so i wouldn't yeah i worry that the thing i think the other thing is though that i i think you're absolutely right but i think the other thing that i worry about the sort of the meaning of the of the shirt is that i worry that it's along with all these other objects that commemorate the Spanish Civil War, you know, the the Spanish mm. the Spanish Second Republic industrial complex, let's call it. Yeah. You know, I worry that it's part of a pattern of sort of valorizing and romanticizing defeat. Mm. And it's made all the easier because the artwork is so beautiful. Mm. You know, like the particularly those posters. Like I worry that they're cheapening that history and I sort of wanted to to add it's that. It's like, like an alternative First World War, really, isn't it? It's like First World War, but for the left. Yes. Like, cause the, yes. like the narrative over the First World War is actually quite, it is actually quite bound up in like sacrifice, but in a way sure. that you might, you know, a lot of like left wing communities do really strongly identify with the work, with, with the First World War. But this is almost like an alternative yeah, yeah, <laughs> narrative yeah. that is explicitly left. 
So mm. like, you know, the, the, the first world war can be claimed by the right and the left in different ways, you know, in like different Facebook groups. So, <laughs> not that I use Facebook, but if I did, I know I'd find them. Yeah. Whereas this is a singularly left kind of a left story because no mm. one's no one's no one in England is going oh yeah you know we supported Franco there's no there's no controversy over the yeah. memory of it it's yeah, explicitly yeah, yeah. a left wing although some Brit- memory a in few a way. Brits and Irish did go out and, and join join the nationalist side yeah, yeah, um, which but, is, but none of them none of their like yeah, ancestors are wearing where's like... their fucking parade <laughs> I mean thank, I, please don't parade please don't if you're, parade. Listen, if you're a fascist <laughs> please don't parade we've had enough of you um, I think it's kind of like interesting because it's part of this landscape of memorialization mm-hmm. and actually something like a show is because I know that there are like a few memorials to the to the Spanish Civil War. I'm not yes. sure where they. Do you know in Britain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one in London for sure, um, and there's one in Glasgow. It was only put up a few years ago. Mm. It's a beautiful kind of statue of La Passionara looking out over the river. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a real. You know, when I say the sort of industrial complex around the <laughs> production of this memory, it, yeah. you know, it's it may be. It may be marg- relatively marginal. It's not funded by the government, um, but I think like it's not so- museumified to the extent that the wars that the British actually engage in. I mean, it's worth emphasising here, actually, for anyone who doesn't know that the official position of, of Britain on the Spanish Civil War at the time was abstention, mm. which mm. which is a massive part of the story, mm. and it's it's why the international brigades had to exist. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, let's not go into the counterfactual narrative of they'd actually <laughs> not abstained from a fight against fascism. But you know, that's that's part of that like valorization of defeat is a valorization of of a bitterness and resentment mm. of the British establishment that would not stand up to fascism when it when it counted. Actually, mm. not on that occasion. But I think like something like this shirt is really interesting because it does this thing that like a monument or a memorial kind of doesn't do so much with that which is that it's like affectively worn and used in the everyday context like Mm -hmm. if you like lived lived near one of those memorials you might notice it and be like oh yeah that memorial but like you know it's kind of liminal in your everyday life it's kind of like on the edges of your periphery until you engage with it and then you're like oh that's to that that war that happened right whereas like wearing a shirt like that is so much more of a statement of identity and Mm. it's it's something that i think a lot of historians are now thinking about like the affective ways like the emotional resonances and of of particular histories and how people engage with them now yeah you know there's something really important about an active engagement which buying a shirt like this and wearing a shirt like this Mm. does that maybe engaging with a memorial does less so so in a way it's more powerful it's like a poppy you know it's like really constantly reminds you yeah i mean and i've had literal engagement in the sense that like a spanish person has approached me while i was wearing it in london and said um hey man i really love your shirt i'm spanish (laughs) And I was like, you know, making mates. Well, I mean, and th- I mean, and thank God that person was, you know, somebody who was <laughs> sort of would have backed the Republican side, and clearly was on that side of the Spanish, um, you know, the Spanish kind of cultural divide. Um, I mean, I think it, I, I wanted to add about like this sense of discomfort I have about the relationship between defeat. Mm. and failure mm. and the memorialization of, of of the moment like so in the, the spanish left have th- thought about defeat a lot mm. <laughs> they've, they've been forced to um and there's this like unsentimental and i think quite profound response that i, I want to share that uh the deputy prime minister pablo iglesias um uh said on who's speaking in, so he's speaking in 2014 when he had first established Podemos, this political new left-wing political party that came from nowhere, mm. but actually did, did not come from nowhere. It came out of like mm. these ma- the mass movement against austerity, disaffection with the established parties, um, and so on. Uh, and when he started Podemos in 2014, he was on TV a lot um, as a young guy, young professor, um, but he there was no political power at that point, right? Mm. He is now Deputy Prime Minister of Spain. It's an insane and remarkable journey. But here he is speaking in 2014 about, um, on TV, and this is unscripted, this is just a response to a question where they're talking about kind of 
the uh, the left wing identity in Spain and a whole history of life on mm. the margins, essentially of, of of political power. So he said, "I have defeat tattooed in my DNA. My great uncle was shot dead. My grandfather was given the death sentence and spent five years in jail. My grandmother suffered the humiliation of those defeated in the civil war. My father was put in jail. My mother was politically active in the underground." It bothers me enormously to lose. I can't stand it. And I spent many years with some friends devoting almost all of our political activity to thinking about how we can win. And when you read that and you think about the Mm. fact that he's now Deputy Prime Minister, like Podemos have had a number of substantial bumps in the road of their their journey Mm. and sort of did not sort of keep growing at the level they once. They did better than Change UK though, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's an amazing amazing and painful comparison, yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, he's now Deputy Prime Minister and and that kind of, that thinking about defeat and about, Mm. uh, is I think an important part you know the left. The left has these historical moments that it draws on. Like I was just listening yesterday to a fantastic uh, episode of Navara um, FM, who are sort of friends of the show, talking about the GLC in London and how important it is for the left to, mm. to sort of dredge up those memories and learn from that experience, essentially. Um, and you know, there's. I don't think. I think that maybe there is a line that you can cross where you um, go beyond considering a historical moment and how it can be politically useful or even Mm. affectively just inspiring Mm. and you become you know a a memorial society rather than some uh, rather than thinking that your politics is about creating change and a more kind of egalitarian society in the here and now There's this historian, Pierre Nora, and I think, well, I think I'm quoting him, where he says that memories, like memory can become quite um, sclerotic, like it Mm -hmm. builds up into this like shell almost. And before Mm. you know it, there's like no creature living inside. Wow. You know, it's kind of, well, I don't even know whether he said that. If I, if he did, if he didn't say that, then. Then it's your metaphor. Then it's my (laughs) metaphor. Maybe let's just completely write him out anyway, because he's got enough power. (laughs) But you know, there's something really, really interesting about the idea that like sometimes memory builds itself up so much that it ends up just leaving like Mm. dusty hallways and Mm. weird photos of Lenin on the walls. But yeah, um... I think one of the things that's like really interesting about that is the ways in which, yeah, like defeat is even like it's so written into like homage to Catalonia, and yeah. which is so important to this narrative of the Spanish Civil War. And it's really interesting when you read Orwell's The Lion and the Unicorn, which came out like what three years after um Mm -hmm. three years after homage to catalonia um during the second world war so in in Mm. the february of 1941 and i think this like feeling of defeat was kind of so present within his work but he was really trying to actively think about how to counter that Mm. how to counter that feeling of defeat how to win Mm. um but he'd obviously been so scarred by those like experiences in the spanish civil war and particularly the kind of Stalinist factions in the I'm Spanish Civil War. Also literally scarred because he was shot in the neck. Yeah, course, and yeah. also literally scarred. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that one of the things that's so interesting about that work and how it comes out of the kind of debates around the Spanish Civil War is that he more firmly starts to align with an idea of like English patriotism and the mm, idea yeah, of the yeah. nation. So I think one of the things that's a little bit uncomfortable, it kind of leaves a little bit of a strange taste in the mouth of any of these kind of myths that all these stories that mythologize a particular period of time Mm. is that you wonder how these stories are being used and why they're being used why they're being constructed in a way no i was just going to say i mean it's it's still it's astonishing to me like how much certain factions of the left will still pour over the history of the spanish civil war you know brits who were born 30 odd years ago Mm. you know who have no direct connection to anyone Mm. that fought in it will get so worked up like basically if you talk to like a, a british anarchist or a british mm. communist today like about the history of the civil war like and the interplay of the different kind of ideologies and cohorts that were fighting you can basically predict what their version of events will be mm. right because they will they you know if you're an anarchist or a trot then the republican side failed to beat fascism because it was too slow 
uh, because the the Republican government in the red, yellow, and purple were too slow to give power and weapons to this sort of pluralistic array of, mm. of militias and so instigate revolution and democratize everything. If you're a communist mm. and you backed the sort of you know even if you're not a Stalinist but you backed sort of the Soviets. Uh, involvement then I can absolutely predict that what you're going to say about the civil war is that like it was only the like desperately needed arrival of Soviet troops and discipline mm. and the eradication of that kind of democratic kind of mess of, of different factions that stops like the fascists just winning in 1937 like two years earlier so there's I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like the the way that people like reach back into that history mm. and still used to justify their existing politics. Yeah, 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 It's seen sure. through the filter of particular historians. Like, the, you know, you speak to an anarchist who's obsessed with the Spanish Civil War, they will have read a particular set of books. Mm. If you speak mm-hmm. to a communist, they would have read, read another different set of books. So are you telling me that it's a little bit like um, like about the Second World War? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well how, yeah, how this moment of history confirms my politics today. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, which, you know, is inevitable up to a point. And I guess we can, all we can do is strive to sort of, you know, read widely before coming to our decisions yeah, about yeah. about things but i think there's something really interesting there about kind of like the ways that something like the second world war was that like so completely claimed by the right by mm. like people like thatcher mm. that they've been used they've been trotted out so mercilessly and at a big p politics level mm. by so many different groups that in a way this is like a refuge just for the yeah, left yeah. you know a, for a these ref- factions to have this conversation oh but you calling it a refuge that's like so that's <laughs> so powerful and profound and, and, and not in a good way in that like i worry that there are these moments in left-wing history these mm. moments of struggle which do become a refuge mm. and they are a refuge from considering just how profound the defeats of people who want a more egalitarian society have been in the last hundred odd years which didn't say we don't have positive things to draw on as well and positive examples and that you obviously you can learn from defeat um but but i worry that yes it's a cozy it can be a cozy thing like you know i even i've even worried about kind of the role that a film like Land and Freedom plays mm. in that it, it's great. It's a fantastic film. I urge everybody to see it. But there's an affective uh, response to seeing all of these comrades standing around the grave, of one of the fallen soldiers, and singing La Internacional, mm. the Spanish version of the Internationale. <laughs> um, that's it's so moving. It's wonderful. Mm. But like in that moment, what you know, what is produced that is kind of constructive or useful. Um, is it is it actually just seeking refuge from the present in this sort of slightly self-indulgent sort of melancholia? I wonder if it's just like an identity-forming practice, mm. you know? Yeah. But I think the thing that's harder for us probably because we are sympathetic to those politics is to be able to detach ourselves from them. Mm. Whereas like it's much easier if you're like critiquing like particular right-wing politics to be like oh my god this isn't how it went (laughs) this isn't true at all (laughs) whereas with that it's like so emotional it Mm. proves really hard to actually resist it proves really really challenging one of the things i think is interesting is the kind of lessons that were learned from that from the spanish civil war and particularly it kind of re-emerges these debates about like claiming a kind of left-wing patriotism like a Mm. left-wing national identity that feels like you know even in the 1940s was profoundly a right-wing narrative so in a way this kind of like attachment to the spanish civil war is a way of truly having that that Mm. foothold that does something which connects people who are left-wing to a historical moment but also connects people who are left-wing in the present moment kind Mm. of vertically across Mm. the across the nation in a way yeah, yeah so i think i guess the thing that's underpinning this are um kind of important national histories as kind of summed up in this t-shirt in a way and i think here's an important place to have a kind of small conversation about national identity patriotism and nationalism because they're kind of names given to fairly complex identity forming practices and it might seem like a little bit tangential because we're not talking about like the idea of the nation um i still think it's important to have this conversation because there is something quite specific about the left-wing british memory of the spanish civil war Mm. i mean we are sort of talking about a nation we're talking about it's it's sort of seems it's confusing and paradoxical, but we're talking about an internationalist left identifying with an avatar of a Spanish nation that only existed for five years. 
technically. Yeah. Like it was a republic, they overthrew the monarchy. Franco subsequently restored it after the Civil War. But like, yeah, this is the strange internationalist valorization of a of a nation state. Yes, as an yeah. av- av- yeah. as an avatar for their socialism. Exactly, so, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think there are two things going on here. There's the memory of the Spanish Civil War for the British left as a community and identity forming practice, and two, I think there's a relationship with the memory of this kind of historical event and the idea of the nation or nationhood. So while you could say it's free from the boundaries of the nation because it's international, there's always a kind of relation or dialectic between the national and the international, mm. kind of implicitly because one is the national, one's the international, <laughs> right? So like, yeah, this is international, but it's also a very left, very British internationalism that I think would be quite good just to really briefly explore. Mm. So one of the key theorists... Uh, for thinking about nationhood and national identity is Benedict Anderson and his 1983 book Imagine Communities is the single most influential work on nationalism. It's also I can tell you the single biggest selling book in the Verso back catalogue it's sing- because every student who goes up to uni like has to buy it. Yeah, no, it's well, like I think it's I think it's every student of politics or, like, or history. Yeah. I think it arguably has kept them afloat as a publisher. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. It sold like something over a million, half a million copies, something no like way. that. Yeah, it sold loads of copies. And what I think is actually quite funny, actually, this is a side note, is that the author of like one of the most cited works on like nationalism and national identity actually ended up having a really ambiguous relationship with this work. So mm. um, in 2005, he was interviewed and um, Anderson actually was like, he said, I have a relationship to that book as to a daughter who's grown up and run off with the bus driver. I see her occasionally, but really she's gone on her own merry way. Like, wow. There's a lot of complex metaphors going on there. Oh, yeah, what a strange, <laughs> strange metaphor. <laughs> I guess he's just kind of saying that it's completely gone off on a different Does he think route? that people who marry bus drivers then live on the bus? Is that <laughs> Anyway, let's, let's not delve into that. Poor, poor Benedict. Wait, they don't? <laughs> yeah. I, wasn't, I didn't think that was how it worked. Yeah. I don't think TFL would back it. Shit, that's my plan. <laughs> my travelling plan. To run off with the bus driver. Yeah. Um, but anyway, for him, Benedict Anderson, the nation can be defined as an imagined political community. Imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members. Meet them or even hear them. Yet in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. And it's a community because regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may prevail in each, the nation is always considered a deep horizontal comradeship. Mm -hmm. So I think what's quite interesting about this, essentially this idea of kind of horizontal comradeship, people within a particular time period will conceptualise themselves as belonging to like a particular specific context. So, like, broadly, I'm a Briton of the late 20th, early 21st century rather than, like, an 18th century Briton. So that's how it kind of works as a powerful horizontal comradeship. Mm. But the powerful thing about narratives of nationhood is that they aren't just horizontal, but they're also profoundly vertical. So they go back through time. They don't just kind of exist now in the moment. They go back through time kind of vertically. So he focused on the imaginings that made the nation thinkable. And particularly, he was interested in why millions of ordinary people chose to fight and die for what they understood as like their nation. Mm. A concept that only really developed between like towards the end of the 18th century. So it's actually really frustrating for a lot of historians because... People think that, like, the idea of the nation, like, Albion, is, like, something that extends back generations, that extends back thousands and thousands of years, and it's actually, like, towards I mean, the late 18th century. I mean, it's extraordinary how far that that, his, that false idea of, yeah, nation nation's history is going back so much further. Yeah. Like, like my, my realisation of how late... The nations of Italy and Germany were yeah, formed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Came horribly late. As someone yeah. has a history degree, did yeah, history A level, it is dreadful how late, mm. but incredibly telling, yeah. how late it was before I realised when the nation of Italy was formed. Because the nation is just such, it has such powerful mm. narratives and practices attached with it. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's really interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, 
Britain goes back to Albion, which goes back to, you know, George and the Dragon. And it's like, you know, dragons aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, they're know. not actually real. <laughs> the, the dragon wrote the Constitution. <laughs> the dragon wrote the Magna Carta. Yeah, yeah. Just, like, signed, like, with a claw print. <laughs> 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 um, but I think, yeah, so... Often we see a development of things like uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is like the archetype of how people who've never met each other conceptualise as being like each other. Mm-hmm. So particularly the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier kind of materialised towards the end of the First World War to kind of deal with the mass death that people were mm-hmm. uh, dealing with essentially you know helping people to come to terms with the fact that they will never see the bodies of their loved ones mm. but really what it does is it connects people kind of horizontally within that moment so during the first world war people be like oh my god we've all lost someone this represents all of us mm. but then in subsequent years when poppies are laying there you know every year it connects us all vertically to this sacrifice that happened in the past mm. that neither you or i had any control over <laughs> yeah but you know we are like inherently pulled back and tied to the history of the nation in that way. Mm. And I think what is really kind of interesting about this shirt is it kind of does a similar thing, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a tomb to the unknown, like, socialist. So in a way, this is like a memorial signifier that kind of represents that historical past. It kind of anchors us or anchors the left in a particular past. Mm. And I find that quite challenging and quite problematic for quite a lot of different reasons. Because if nations use those kind of narratives to anchor me to anchor us all to an idea that, you know, we have a stake in 1914 to 1918, Mm. then what's this doing? Why do the left have a stake in that particular history? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very good question. I think the answer is a has to be quite a complex one, basically, about Mm. about sort of a mixture of a desire to pay homage to 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 people who sacrifice themselves and and this you know which is very similar actually mm-hmm. to to the sort of way that you know the the way that the first world war is memorialized the way that a wilfred owen poem might play the same role mm-hmm. um in, as as a ken loach film you know mm-hmm. about about the civil the spanish civil war but i mean it's also because Spain was very close at certain moments to sort of mm. enacting socialism in Western Europe. Mm. And that's sort of part, and it, it with the spectre of fascism looming in mm. Italy and Germany, you know, it's temporal location. Yeah, that, for sure. And that particular moment in the mid to late 1930s is vital. It was, you know, viewed both at the time and subsequently in many ways as, as a sort of forerunner of mm. of the Second World War, even though obviously... At the time, people didn't actually know the Second World War was coming, yeah. and they actually sort of think, "Oh, this is a forerunner." But they, but they, but to an extent, they did. And you know, mm. and I think, I think there's an understanding of there's like all this really the, interesting interwar literature that's about like the imaginings of the Second World War. Yeah. That's like really, really harrowing about like aerial bombardment, and it's like we're all going to die. Basically, it's like super harrowing. It's stuff. almost it almost sounds like yeah, it'd be more harrowing to sort of read about people's fears of what was about to yeah. come, but knowing it, that it did. Yeah. Yeah, you but know, I mean, it was like, it was explicitly shaped by the Spanish Civil War because obviously, mm, like, well, so that's where the Luftwaffe, well, yeah, yeah, like, because basically practiced. got their chops. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Know, um, so, like, the fear of aerial bombardment was mm, particularly real in a lot of the like cultural imaginary in Britain or a lot of people's cultural imaginings mm, because literally they had seen or heard that like Guernica had happened. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and how and how you know how scarring and traumatizing as well though to during the period of appeasement mm. to see that there is also appeasement going on from britain and france towards spain mm. uh, towards a, a spanish coup against an elected democracy mm. an elected socialist democracy and to to experience you know for people who were alive at the time and were sympathetic to the spanish cause and sympathetic to socialism and terrified of fascism a lot of so many jews fought in the international brigades mm. as well for example um to just see that specter yeah yeah just for my quick um wikipedia research mm. um it was like ten thousand jewish people from diff- different nations is that something right that sounds plausible i mean much like the poles they were scattered across europe mm. already mm. to a large extent a lot of the people who went on to volunteer but yes i i would heartily recommend the as close to definitive as you're going to get history yeah. that giles trimler's just written and i guess also one thing that i just want to kind of say is that 
often when you have these discussions, I'm sure we'll get a lot of listeners that are going to be listening and going, well, is it a bad thing? Is it a bad thing to uh, wear a t-shirt like this? Or is it a bad thing? And I don't think questions of good or bad are necessarily helpful. That's not what we're here for, No, it's not about good or bad. I'm not like, I don't think like, I don't think like saying, oh yeah, wearing this shirt is bad because it does this. I think actually what is important is that we're interrogating the ways in which all the narratives that kind of associate are around these objects. Mm. And I don't think we need to make, I don't think anyone needs to make conclusions of good or bad because they're always complex, right? Meanings are always complex. I mean, like when I wear this t-shirt, I feel on one level, I sort of, I feel that sort of guilt I'm describing of, of like, oh, maybe this is just like a cheap egotistical substitute for reading more books about anti-fascism or engaging in anti-fascist praxis. Like, here's the evidence that I'm not thinking enough, that I'm just wearing this history as a badge. Mm. Um, and then I also think, fuck's sake, Dan, just chill out. Like, it's, yeah. you know, maybe it's okay. <laughs> we all wear our tribal affiliations and identities in all sorts of ways. And like wearing an anti-fascist t-shirt is not mutually exclusive with having good practices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think like, like the context matters and the ways in which we interrogate that. It's like, I also don't want it to sound like we're being preachy because I break these rules all the time. I'm like a prime collector of tat. Like I love all the like. This is why we're doing this. This is podcast. why we're doing this <laughs> But yeah, I just think it's kind of important to say. Mm. But yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting in The Lion and the Unicorn that Orwell wrote in 1941 um, is that he says, one cannot see the modern world as it is unless one recognising one recognises the overwhelming strength of patriotism, national loyalty. In certain circumstances, it can break down. At certain levels of civilization, it does not exist. But as a positive force, there is nothing to set beside it. Christianity and international socialism are as weak as straw in comparison with it. Hitler and Mussolini rose to power in their countries very largely because they could grasp this fact and their opponents could not. And what I think is so interesting is that he's saying this like three years after he went to Spain to fight for international socialism. <laughs> so he was obviously just really angry and hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a product of that anger and hurt. And I think it, um, and you can, because you can read that in Tomic Catalonia as well, mm. just like the sh- it is scarring for mm. him to see the left turn in on itself. The left obviously not being a homogenous thing. To see Stalinism essentially mm. like eradicate these uh, more grassroots organisations. And I think, I don't know, to me, what that says is in the current context of Britain 2020 is we need to be very careful about how we respond to defeat Mm. in that, you know, I mean, we're recording this in in December uh, 2020 Mm. um, and it's two days away from the anniversary, the first anniversary of the crushing of uh, Corbynism and the Labour Party Mm. in the the general election. Um, And actually, James Butler, the presenter on Navarra FM, uh, that I was listening to the other day, said, quote, it feels to me like I'm living in an eternal December the 13th. Oh my God. One year on, I would have thought it would have faded, but no. And... um, I'm think, so glad my like Google Calendar doesn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you know? if it commemorated that. <laughs> you know the way like you look on your like phone and it says like Battle of the Boyne and you're like, oh my god, it's like I'm gonna get a bank holiday because it says bank holiday and then it says Battle of the Boyne and you're like, oh no, not here. <laughs> <laughs> and you get out your Battle of the Boyne flags. So, yeah. No, obviously not. But yeah, um but yeah, I think you know how how if Orwell's sort of response to that scarring and jarring kind of crushing of sort of his idealism of a cohesive, Mm. coherent and powerful internationalist Mm. left um, and discover, you know, the scales falling from his eyes about Stalinism, which happened for him there and happened to other British leftists after the war at various points, Mm. usually after 1956 and the invasion of Hungary. Um, That was, I think, when when most people abandoned that right. 1956? Yeah, mainly. I think it's like really interesting as well because um, I think it was Kim Philby who was the British spy who was a communist and Mm. sold loads of like secrets to the communists during the during the Second World War, he, I listened to like a dramatization of his life. And I don't know whether this is like grounded in what he actually said or thought, but it really struck a chord with me that like, they were so like, he was so supportive of the like, 
he was so supportive of the Spanish Civil War. Like, mm. he was so supportive of the left of the Spanish Civil War. And obviously no one knew that the Soviets were selling oil to both sides, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Absolute fucking piss take. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Imagine that. You've, like, literally sold all the secrets. Or, like, not sold, but, you know, like, spied for, for Russia during mm. the Second World War. And then... Only to like see like afterwards. Oh oh shit! Like I got played. <laughs> I got so played in the thirties. That's his own history of defeat. Yeah. Sort of how you respond to defeat is really important. Mm. I think, and it's something that the British left is still trying to work out what to do after an election defeat a year mm. ago, which obviously not not quite the same as the you know kind of crushing of uh, and killing of hundreds of thousands of people as described in uh, by by Pablo Iglesias mm. in Spain, but is nonetheless like something that can shift people's politics and I think historically mm. always does. And I don't know, I suppose it reflects something wider about this idea that what you choose to draw up and dredge up from history and what you choose to read about, to talk about, to take mm. as your political inspiration is really important. And, you know, I've been I've been thinking about about Benjamin recently in the context mm. of this episode and his sort of injunction to, that you should try and sort of reassemble uh, the the wreckage of history, essentially, to pull up those and sort of forgotten, you know, he doesn't talk about the history of the losers, but that's how it's often sort of described as well, that, you know, um, that there are versions of events that are told by by the victors of history that sort of present a relatively smooth and, uh, sort of linear kind of teleological like progress towards mm-hmm. like towards where we are now, um, and it is sort of our jobs to 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 tough. I mean, I don't don't know if the Spanish Civil War needs a lot more studying. Like I was actually told by an agent that I was a literary agent I was talking to last year. He um he really he kind of pissed me off because he responded to he was like oh did you write a book about Spain I said yes I did and he was like. Do you know what you should do, Dan? A Spanish Civil War book. You'd write a banging Spanish Civil War book. And it's like, the world doesn't need another fucking Spanish Civil War, but there are so many. And I just felt that was quite insulting to the Spanish Civil War as well as to me. Like, like the idea that there are just, you know, oh, people clearly like books about the Spanish Civil War because there are 500 million of them. Why don't we do one more? You know, to me, like... Hey, man, it's either that or OnlyFans. <laughs> 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 that's not the career direction my career needs um but you know to me to me like like a book that i would like to write i'm not going to because mm. no one would fucking buy it but a book i would like to write would be about the asturias revolution in 1934 that preceded the civil war which is something that is completely underexplored that is mm. absolutely like uh just an extraordinary kind of um moment where like the different kind of political factions of the left in the small, sparsely populated mountainous region of Asturias in northern Spain came together and, like, believing that the revolution was about to happen in Madrid and Barcelona, which it wasn't, stormed the capital, took over Oviedo, the capital of Asturias, like, marched from their mountain villages, they're mostly mining villages. Mm. It's basically like South Wales, <laughs> but, but in Spain uh, and with good cider. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, the, the, the story of the Asturias Revolution is this insane and unfortunately, you know, ended in tragedy as well when mm. a young, little-known general called Franco was sent with the, uh, to, to, like, crush it. Um, those are the moments that, you know, I think exist in the wreckage that, mm. you know can tell us something that we don't already know, I suppose. Mm. Um, they're not nothing to do with British left identity, but I think, you know, um, there is there is this appetite for stories that um, are little known and little told that might offer some inspiration. You know, mm. I, think, I think the left, because of its marginality from power, mm. really relies on them as part of its identity formation, as we mm-hmm. see in the shirt, but, um, but also in its, its sort of obsession with political education which is mm. like a very important part of i think a lot of people's left-wing identity you you need to you need to read read marx and you need to mm. you need to you know see this ken Lynch film and so forth <laughs> <laughs> and i guess on that note um that's where we should wrap it up um Follow us on our social media, support our Patreon so that Dan can uh, self-publish this book. He doesn't have to get only fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, and we will see you next week for more Cursed Objects. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.